Right. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are watching in this world. Uh, welcome to uh, this presentation. Now, look, I'm going to do something that I've never actually done before. I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to do, for the first 20 minutes, uh, a presentation about a topic that's not on the catalog. And um, I, I've never done this before. And if you think that I've never, uh, if you don't want me to do this or whatever, um, I'm doing it because we are living through such an existential fiasco and disaster that we've got to talk about it. And what I'm talking about is the $2 trillion scam in Afghanistan. Um, it's directly on our subject as financial crimes uh, um, investigators. And at this conference, uh, no one is discussing it. So I want to talk about it for the first 20 minutes. Then if you're coming to listen to me on sports gambling, organized crime, and all those other subjects, something that I'm a world expert in, absolutely, I will, I promise you, speak about this. But I want to discuss this because it's about our topic, and no one else at our conference, unfortunately, has had an opportunity to do so. So I'm going to kick off and do that. I wanted to say a couple of things first, right away, to establish the ground rules as you're watching this in your home or wherever you are. Um, I may be an expert in sports and organized crime. I'm not an expert in Afghanistan. I worked as a journalist for uh, a fairly long time in Iraq. I understand the American and NATO uh, military industrial uh, defense complex pretty well, but I'm not an expert. And so if there's somebody who's watching this who's an expert from personal reasons, from personal experience, be it an Afghan veteran or, or, or somebody who maybe uh, is Afghani, who's lived there, um, I, I beg you uh, to put your comments in below um, here because we need to hear your voices. What I'm doing is I'm just the person who's got a microphone now. I want to break the window of this conversation and just start it. Start discussing how we could have failed for so long, so badly, killed thousands of NATO troops, wounded tens of thousands of people, killed hundreds of thousands of Afghanis and displaced millions of people and, as I said at the beginning, um, managed to waste trillions of dollars. It's a sad story. It's a sordid story. Um, and it's going to shock you if you guys don't know uh, the depth of the corruption. Uh, it's really profound in all kinds of existential ways. Finally, uh, many of you will be Joe Biden partisans or Donald Trump fans or whatever in your political uh, home countries. I'm not going to get into the argument of whether Joe Biden's um, pullout of Afghanistan was a fiasco. I think it's a legitimate question to explore. I think that other people more uh, with more expertise should be answering that question. <clears throat> and I also think there's a legitimate question to ask why Donald Trump and his diplomats cut out the Afghan government and only negotiated with the Taliban. But I don't want to get into the partisanship. I don't want to get into the Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, labor, whatever, that is so hamstrung Western discourse in the last 20 years. I want to put that to one side. Legitimate questions, but I want to put it to one side. Because what we're going to explore in the next 10, 15 minutes is corruption that's so mind-bogglingly endemic. It's not owned by one polit particular political party, but it's owned by our system. And we've got to discuss this. 
We've got to discuss this because fundamentally what happened in Afghanistan over the last couple of months and over the last 20 years is our Berlin Wall. This is 1989 and we are the Soviets. Our society, our countries, our industries, financial crimes investigators is on the dock and we've got to start discussing this. My final uh, point in all this is that the only thing, even though I'm going to tell you stuff that will, I think, if you don't know the story, going to profoundly shock you, really profoundly shock you. And I would not have your families listen to what we're going to go into because there's some stuff that is really, really, really creepy. I'm only going to tell you facts. And if there's at any moment where you think, hey, Professor Hill from the University of New Haven, you are just like off the deep end on this one, please, I beg you, go and check what I have to say. Because what I'm going to say about this corruption and what I'm going to tell you about this is so profoundly shocking, if you don't know, that I beg you to check my facts. I haven't got anything wrong. And in many cases, I'm understating the depth of corruption or what we backed there. So next 10 to 12 minutes, we're going to talk about Afghanistan. We're going to talk, start this conversation going. Then uh, I invite you, if you guys are not interested in hearing me discuss this, join me in about 12, 15 minutes, and we'll get on to the topic of sports gambling and organized crime. Okay, let me get now into that classic PowerPoint presentation, the ones that you've all seen here. Wrong one, of course, I pulled up. Uh, let me see here. Here we go. I'm hoping you can see this, guys. Right. Afghanistan, the $2 trillion fiasco. First of all, let's just start with the basics. We've all witnessed the um, debacle of the evacuation of Hamid Karzai Airport in the center of Afghanistan. But one of the things that has been discussed in the popular meter is what happened to the Afghan Air Force. It had received tens of billions of dollars of taxpayers' money. That's your money and other public citizens in the West. And the corruption was so endemic in the Afghan Army Air Force, so the military air force of the Afghanistan that our taxpayers paid, that it was a, a de facto Taliban taxi service. There were a number of times when the Taliban were corrupting local people on the ground and the planes were flying to the schedule of the Taliban. So the Taliban was using the planes that we provided to beat our own people. That's the beginning of the depth of corruption that was so endemic in this country that we set up. Um, <clears throat> if that seems unbelievable, let's take a look at um, the growth of drug um, shipments in Afghanistan since the mid-90s. This um, survey comes from the United Nations Office on Drug Control and Drug and Crime. Um, it was put out by the BBC a couple of years ago. And you can see the lowest point of opium production in Afghanistan was actually in 2001 when the Taliban officially announced that they were going to prevent the growth of opium poppies for heroin uh, manufacture. Uh, at that point, it was somewhere around 7,000 uh, hectares were just a little bit over 7,000 hectares. By 2018, it had risen to somewhere close to 323,000 hectares. So while our people were in command, in control, were directing the security of this country, the 
opium for heroin expanded 43 times from 7,000 to well over 320,000 hectares. It's still vastly high. Now, if you don't know this, you might be struggling a bit. You might be thinking, hang on a second, Hill, you might have got this wrong. Well, here's the next almost unbelievable scale of corruption. This guy, the guy who's appearing on your screen, is one of or was one of Afghanistan's most notorious drug lords. And when I say he was one of the most notorious drug lords, you probably want me to bring some evidence to the table. Well, a number of NATO commanders came out publicly and said, this man is in charge of the uh, drug supply in Kandahar um, and that province in um, the Helmand province in um, Afghanistan. Here's the head scratching issue and much more. He's the brother of the president. This guy is the half-brother or was the half-brother of Hamid Karzai, the guy that the West dropped in to become the president of Afghanistan and then rigged the 2009 election in Afghanistan to make sure that he sustained and be continued to be the president of Afghanistan. Now, the fact that uh, Hamid Karzai's brother was a notorious drug lord was known to most of NATO senior command. In fact, <clears throat> it was shown that the Drug Enforcement Agency wanted to mount a major investigation and do a major campaign to investigate this guy. A number of NATO commanders had already talked about this, and they were blocked by the CIA and senior officials in the Drug Administration. So it makes the question, it begs the question to us, these gentlemen that you're seeing raising the flag, and I happen to bring up a photo of American troops. I know that some of you guys are watching this internationally. If your service fought in Afghanistan or served in Afghanistan, were they effective drug, excuse me, were they effective bodyguards for drug lords? Because that's how it seems. And these men at the end of the line that you see, the Afghan translators, the, the uh, you know, one of them is, is standing there with his face mask covered uh, for identity purposes. These are the guys who are struggling to get out of the country now. And I don't mean to put any insult on any service or any dead veteran, but working for Hamid Karzai and working for his brother meant that many of these people had essentially become de facto bodyguards for drug lords. And if you want to understand the key to why so many service people have taken their own lives since returning to Afghanistan, this may be part of the reason. Now, look, this is pretty shocking if you haven't known it. It's just about to get much, much worse. So hang on to this one, all right? This is a report from Amnesty International. Um, it's duplicated, it's replicated in dozens of other reports. And it's the talking about how children were treated in Afghanistan by our allies and by our forces there. I'm gonna read you this last paragraph, but again, if you don't know this story and it's gonna get even worse, please check this out. Please see that Amnesty International has got the details, the logic, the, the, the substantive details behind this in a major way. But hang on for this. Quote, children continue to be recruited for combat, particularly by armed groups in the Afghan security forces, 
pro-government militias and local police, that's our people, and faced multiple abuses, including sexual abuse. Afghanistan continued to, according to UNMA, one of the deadliest countries in the world for children, with both pro-government, our people, and anti-government forces, that's the Taliban scumbags, responsible for more than 700 child casualties each. Listen to this. It's going to get worse. In October, First Vice President Amarul Sela announced ordering the arrest of an individual who reported civilian casualties in an Afghan government airstrike on a school which had killed 12 children. And later, the Takar provincial government spokesperson reported that he was removed from his position for reporting on child civilian casualties caused by the Afghan security forces. Now, maybe I've read that too quickly. Maybe you're still struggling with this thought. Maybe you're still hanging out for the sports gambling stuff. Let's unpack that for a second. They arrested the guy who said, you bombed the school. You've killed 12 civilians. In fact, those civilians were our kids. Even worse, when the spokesperson, the political spokesperson for once in many political media spokesperson took off his professional hat and said, hey, guys, we've had a lot of child civilian casualties caused by our people. He was fired from his job. This isn't something that stopped a number of years ago. Last month, as you know, there was a suicide bombing in the Kabul Hamid Karzai airport. And two days later, a po-faced uh, president of the United States, Joe Biden, announced that they had done a drone strike and taken out a suicide bomber, a potential suicide bomber. And they'd saved American military lives and Afghan civilians. Oh, that it were true. What the American forces actually did was they launched a drone strike on a man who was delivering water. And he was kind of a good Samaritan of the neighborhood. He was filling up these cans. He was putting in his car and he was driving around to make sure that his neighbors and his friends and families all had enough water to drink. And because he was such a nice guy, he brought his family and there were seven children. One of them was a little girl aged two years old. Another one was a four-year-old boy. And our people, three weeks ago from the date of this recording, were killed by our people. And, and the very final movement as our people left Afghanistan, we managed to kill 10 innocent people, seven of whom were children. It's worse. It's much worse. If you um, have been shocked so far, the turn that we're about to take places the unbelievable existential corruption at the heart of the Western involvement in Afghanistan in perspective. And it is truly appalling. So if you have any children or anybody of sensitive nature, for goodness sake, get them out of the room, but come back. Because if you don't know this next story, you don't know the validity of what I'm about to tell you, you're going to be absolutely shocked. There was systemic, sustained, systematic sexual abuse of young boys by our allies. If you can't uh, read this, um, this is a photograph of a young hero. Uh, he's an American. 
and he did the right thing. He was in charge of a special forces command unit uh, who had a fight with a U.S.-backed militia leader. And do you know the reason why they had a fight with a U.S.-backed militia leader? They, they fought with their own allies. He ordered his people to go do the right thing because the commander of that militia had an eight-year-old boy chained to his bed and was using him as his sexual slave. Now, once all the scandal, once the furor, once everything was all the investigations were done about why the U.S. Special Forces had actually attacked one of their own people to rescue this kid, one fact is clear. The only man who lost his job was Dan Quinn. He was sent home. And I'm appalled to tell you that that sexual abuse just carried on. Let me reread you this report from the New York Times by the reporter Joseph Goldstein in September 20th, uh, 2015. Kabul, Afghanistan. In his last phone call home, Lance Corporal Gregory Buckley Jr. told his father what was troubling him. From his bunk in southern Afghanistan, he could hear Afghan police officers sexually abusing boys they had brought to the base. At night, we can hear them screaming, but we're not allowed to do anything about it. The Marine's father, Gregory Buckley Sr., recalled his son telling him before he was shot to death at the base in 2012. He urged his son to tell his superiors, my son said that his officers told him to look the other way because it's their culture. Rampant sexual abuse of children has long been a problem in Afghanistan, particularly among armed commanders who dominate much of the rural landscape and can bully the population. The practice is called bachabazi, literally boy play. And American soldiers and Marines have been instructed not to intervene. In some cases, not even when their Afghan allies have abused boys on military bases, according to interviews and court records. And I want to stress those last six words, according to interviews and court records. This isn't some gossip. This isn't some conjecture or an isolated case. Bacha Bazi, boy play, involved our people, the regional warlords that we supported and, um, and, and, and aided with our taxpayers' money. They would, they would kidnap children on the street and force them to work in their harem. And when they kidnapped him, these boys were six, eight, nine, ten years old. The one group, the one military group that didn't participate in Bachabazi were those scumbags, the Taliban. And I'm not playing games here. The, the Taliban are scumbag. And, and, and their, their treatment of women and their treatment of various minorities and their um, harsh rule is well known. But one of the things that they did not do, along with drug exportation, was kidnap children to be used for their sexual play. And I'm not trying to make them into some heroes, but if you're an Afghan villager and you have a choice between two evils, you may be inclined to choose the lesser evil, the one that is going to leave your son alone. Ladies and gentlemen, what we created was a narco state. It was a narco state run by drug lords, one of whom was purportedly the brother of the president that we put in power. And here is the really shocking moment. 
here's the stuff where as financial crimes investigators and listeners and viewers around the world, we really need to take a moment here because it's going to get worse. This next slide makes it worse. We knew everything. Nothing, not a syllable of what I have said so far in this presentation is a surprise to any senior U.S. or NATO official. They all knew this. They all knew the depth of their corruption. They all knew what was going on in Afghanistan and what our taxpayers' money and what our boys, girls, men, women, the machine that we were sacrificing them on that caused hundreds of thousands of people to die and millions to be displaced. Here's the other shocking point if you are a Westerner. is 70% of the money never left our own countries. If you're watching this from America, 70% of the money spent in Afghanistan never left. And the basic dynamic is what's called the Iron Triangle. Now, you can see on my chart here that I got fancy pictures, uh, you know, ac academic stuff. But let me go to a, a, a more simplistic version. Here you go. This is the defense Iron Triangle that rules much of Washington, D.C. It's the same military industrial complex that that great warrior, that great Western warrior who was actually pretty much the last American general to successfully win a campaign, Dwight Eisenhower. When the former uh, Allied Supreme Commander on D-Day and the Normandy campaign retired from his presidency of the United States, he took time to warn the American public and the world about the existence of the military industrial complex. And basically it works the following way. Politicians, whatever their party, Democrat or Republican, receive hundreds of millions of dollars in election campaign expenses from the defense industry. There are five big defense contractors. Those guys hire many former senior officials at the Pentagon who receive their budget from the Congress who received their money from the defense industry. And this iron triangle continues. What it has produced is examined in dozens of this body's work. This is the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. And again, I urge you guys, if anyone is sitting there at home today going, first of all, you know, Hill, I didn't expect this. I was expecting something on sports, um, you know, organized crime. <clears throat> and you don't believe something that I've said, please go, go, go and check this. Just go and check everything that I've said and you'll see much of it substantiated. In fact, much of it expanded and, and with more details in these reports. So the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction filed and inspected and investigated and produced hundreds, if not thousands of pages, but it didn't stop. And it didn't stop the corruption and the child abuse, the rampant child abuse that was going on because so many of our senior leaders lied to us. I have a number of issues with journalism at the Washington Post. I think it's a largely hit or miss operation now since Jeff Bezos took over. But I, my metaphorical hat is absolutely off to this series that they did in December 2019. It is called the Afghanistan Papers, and it's where they got hold of the secret interviews with top senior American leaders. 
And almost every single one of those interviews and almost every single one of those documents say and show that the senior leadership knew how bad it was. They knew that Afghanistan was an unwinnable nightmare back in 2006, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Yet they continued to go in front of Congress and lie. Ladies and gentlemen, um, that is what happened in Afghanistan. That's a small picture of what happened in Afghanistan. And you can understand, I think, when you go through those stories, specifically the one about sexual abuse of young children and seeing how widespread that was. It wasn't a case of one or two miscreants. It was a systematic system that was backed with taxpayers' money. Why I've taken a little bit of time today to discuss um, what went on in Afghanistan and the reason that we need to talk about it. If you've got any comments, if you want to begin the debate, you want to fire questions back at me, please. There's um, space below to write questions and comments, and I welcome it. I welcome anything. 